Father, you are not a God who hides himself, but a God who has revealed himself to us, the creation around us, in your word, and ultimately in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. It is he who has explained you, who has revealed you fully and finally to us. And so, Lord, as we look now at the testimony of your word about the Lord Jesus, we pray you would open our hearts to understand what you have written for our instruction. Speak for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians 3 then. Uh, We are approaching the time of year when people begin to make New Year's resolutions. Now, if you're like me, you forget to make New Year's resolutions until about 8 a.m. on New Year's Day. Then you forget that you made them, and so you don't follow through on them. One resolution that you might find among many Christians is a, a renewed commitment to regular Bible reading. Of course, that's a very good thing to commit yourself to. I would commend that to you. You should be reading the Bible regularly. Uh, To encourage that commitment, we often adopt uh, a Bible reading plan, uh, many of which will take us through the the whole Bible in a year. You know the drill. Half of us forget those resolutions soon after they've been made. The other half of us start with an an excitement in Genesis 1. Maybe we're going to Make it through the exciting story of Exodus, this this sweeping narrative of of God's rescue of Israel. And then we reach Exodus 20. And our reading switches abruptly from that narrative of rescue, that, that plan of redemption, to a legal code, the law, 613 commands given by God to govern Israel's life. Stretches from the middle of Exodus through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So speaking from both experience and observation, I think I can safely say that for many of us, the law is where Bible reading plans go to die. Now, it shouldn't be so. It's God's Word. But we're probably a bit embarrassed to admit it. The reality is we don't know quite what to do with the law. It can be tempting then when we, when we read a book like Galatians to maybe get the wrong idea. So Paul has gone to great lengths in Galatians to show that doing the works required by the law is definitely not the means by which people come to forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Those blessings come only by grace through faith in Christ alone. You say, John, you sure say that a lot every week. I do. It's really important. But if we're not careful, we might hear some of the things that Paul says in the book of Galatians and elsewhere about the law and think to ourselves, well, Paul says the law can't make us right with God. It must not be that important. Great, we can just skip straight on past the law and go right to the New Testament. It sure will make our Bible reading plan a lot easier to finish. I think Paul would say, not so fast, my friend. Well, he's arguing for this core gospel truth that righteousness before God comes through faith in Christ and not works the law, 
Even so, he's decidedly not arguing that the law is therefore pointless and dispensable. Rather, he's arguing that the law, that the law does not and cannot do what his opponents claim it can do. It can't justify and give life. It can't save, but that does not therefore render it useless. And that's his point in Galatians 3, 15 to 25. In this passage, he's arguing again for the the priority and the superiority of God's plan to justify people, Jews and Gentiles, to declare them right in His sight through faith in Christ and not through works of the law. His opponents apparently claimed that even if Scripture says that Abraham was justified by faith as it does in Genesis 15, we read earlier, as Paul points out earlier in Galatians 3, but that this was a temporary or provisional arrangement until the law was given. Justification by faith for Abraham was sort of a bridge to get to the real deal, the law. And at that point, the law superseded or, or fundamentally altered how people relate to God. It came later, which must mean it's a new and improved operating system. Because we know that everything that comes later is always better, right? I mean, why would God go to all this trouble to give the law if it wasn't meant to be an upgrade over his initial covenant with Abraham? So for Paul to say that doing the works of the law does not lead to justification in life was to go against much of what the Jewish religious leaders taught at the time. So according to these false teachers that Paul is is opposing in Galatia, If Paul says the law doesn't justify and lead to eternal life, then he's effectively saying that the law has no place or point. And he would be guilty, or so his opponents would have thought, of of simply skipping over, or worse, intentionally cutting out a significant portion of God's Word. Now, Paul would say, of course, that this is not the case at all. Remember, Galatians is all about getting the gospel right. And part of getting the gospel right is getting the law right. And one of the reasons that Paul's opponents had gotten the gospel so wrong is that they had started by getting the law wrong. So here, Paul makes a, a careful, complex, nuanced argument illustrating both that his opponents had a a mistaken perception of the law and that his understanding of what the law did not and could not do didn't mean that it was therefore pointless. It was important and good and necessary, but not for the reasons or in the ways that the false teachers thought. And it's important because if we get the law wrong we'll get the gospel wrong too. Paul's point here is this. The law does not change the divine promise of the gospel. But the law does have a divine purpose that serves the gospel. The law doesn't change the divine promise of the gospel, but it does have a divine purpose that actually serves the gospel. Right? So we're going to think about those two parts this morning corresponds to how the passage sort of is broken up. Verses 15 to 18, the law does not change the divine promise of the gospel. 
And then verses 19 to 25, the law does have a divine purpose that serves the gospel. All right? So first, verses 15 to 18. The law does not change or supersede or nullify the promise made to Abraham, which Paul said previously was actually a promise about the gospel. Right? Remember, he said up in verse 8 that when God promised to, to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through you, he was actually preaching to Abraham the gospel of justification by faith. And so what he's saying here is that the giving of the law doesn't change that gospel promise. So look at verse 17. This is sort of where Paul makes his, his main point. Verse 17. What I mean is this. It's usually a good sign that this is the thing that he wants you to focus on. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, that is after the promise does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So God made his promise to Abraham long before the law ever came onto the scene. The law was given through Moses to the people of Israel in the wilderness 430 years after the covenant was made with Abraham. And this timeline is vital so we read earlier in Genesis 15, God made his covenant with Abraham and he, he ratified it himself. And so whatever happens after that, this covenant is locked in stone. Whatever God declares or reveals afterward neither abrogates nor, nor alters what he's already promised. And that means that the law doesn't change the promise that justification is by faith and not by works. Paul's going to defend that in two ways. He's going to use an example from everyday life, and he's going to appeal to the faithfulness of God. So first he uses this example from everyday life. Look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. This is an argument that Paul uses often in his letters, an argument of lesser to greater. It says, if human agreements are considered inviolable after they've been established, how much more is it the case with God? And you might say human agreements are set aside or changed or ignored all the time. Well, maybe some, but not all. Have you ever tried to change your cell phone contract? Right. But Paul's not talking about general human agreements or, or contracts, though. He's, even in his day, like now, normal contracts could be changed or altered under the right circumstances. But Paul is thinking more specifically of the idea of a covenant. In the ancient world, a, a covenant between two people was something much more serious than an agreement or a contract. Covenants were solemn, sacred promises, and they were ratified by the the two parties involved, by means of an animal sacrifice. The sacrificed animal would be split in two and the parties would walk between the halves, sort of symbolically illustrating something like 
may this be my fate if I am unfaithful to this covenant. It was deadly serious business. We see an example of this in Genesis 15 where Abraham sacrifices these animals and splits them in two. The point of the example that Paul is, is using here of human covenants is that if this is how we treat solemn covenant obligations between fickle and fallible people, how much more is it the case with the ever-faithful and infallible God? On that point, he appeals then more directly to the faithfulness of God. Verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And so if the inheritance, that is the covenant promises, the blessing, which we've ultimately seen is this this promise of the gift of justification before God received by faith, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. So if the law which came long afterwards somehow sets aside or otherwise modifies God's covenant promises to Abraham so that the blessing promised was now dependent on obedience and not grace, then we have a serious problem. It means, if the means by, by which God grants righteousness changes from faith to works. And Paul says in Romans 4, in that case, the promise is worthless. Someone's promise is considered worthless when they have been proven unfaithful, untrustworthy. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. This isn't just a simple matter of chronology and theological technicalities. If the terms of justification before God changed, then God's promise is worthless, and God can't be trusted. Think back to what we just read from Genesis 15. God declares Abraham righteous through faith, and God establishes His covenant with Abraham to give him descendants who will inherit this land and bless the world. Ultimately, we read Paul here saying, through this one descendant, Christ, that's the the point of verse 16. But do you remember what happens in that covenant ceremony in Genesis 15? It's not Abraham who passes through the sacrificed animals. It's God alone. This is a a covenant promise that's not dependent both on Abraham's faithfulness and God's faithfulness. It's entirely dependent on God's faithfulness alone. So then if God makes this promise to Abraham and then 430 years later decides, okay, now we're going to change things up and go with the law, it would mean that God went back on His promise. That God was unfaithful to His word, that God had violated His covenant oath. Now, it's not that Paul's opponents actually believed that to be true. But Paul was showing that this was the logical outworking of their claims. They were saying that Paul had set aside the Word of God by taking 
the law out of this conversation about justification. But Paul responds, no, it's actually you who have set aside the Word of God by trying to insert the law somewhere it doesn't belong. Because if the whole arrangement is now changed, that justification comes by the law, then what we're saying is that God has changed His mind, that He is unfaithful and that He can't be trusted. That's the implication we get from this final statement in in verse 18. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise, and therefore that must still be the case. If the law changes this, it means that God is unfaithful. The law can no more change this promise or its terms than God can cease to be God. That teaches us more than just that the law doesn't change the promise of the gospel. That's important, but beneath it is an even basic and more vital truth. That's that God does not change. He doesn't change as it's been said. He doesn't change in His being, His perfections, His purposes, or His promises. Paul's opponents had been correct, and if righteousness could be gained through the law, not only would it mean that Christ died for nothing, is what he said in Galatians 2.21, but it would also mean that God can't be trusted. If you allow me to use a very nerdy illustration for a moment, we're Sam Tubb. Sam, you're going to like this. There's a point in The Empire Strikes Back. If you haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back, it was a movie about 40 years ago, so if I'm going to spoil it, and, and if that's the case for you, you should have seen it already. There's a point in The Empire Strikes Back where one of the cari- uh, characters, Lando Calrissian, makes a deal with Darth Vader, which, as you might guess, is not a great idea. Sure enough, Vader keeps changing the terms of the arrangement. Despite Lando's protests, Vader simply replies, I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. That's what an unfaithful, changing God is like. You make a deal with me, but there's no guarantee that I'm not going to change it, and if I change it, there's nothing you can do about it. But the God of the Bible is not like Darth Vader. Nor, frankly, is He like us. We who constantly change our minds and go back on our word. God is categorically and qualitatively different. To be true to His word, changeless in His purposes and promises, is just what it means for Him to be who He is. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever shalt be. Or as we just sang, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. This is not just what God chooses to do on his good days. As if some days he doesn't change and other days he's more temperamental and unpredictable. No, he's, he's utterly reliable and eternally changeless. It is who He is. For Him to change is for Him to cease to be God, because for Him to be unchanging is just another way of saying that He is God. That means it's impossible for God to be unfaithful. 
The implication of this is that God's promise of the gospel will not, cannot change. So you don't have to go through life worried that in the end God will capriciously move the goalposts on you and say, yeah, well, at one point you were justified by faith, but now I've decided that the terms are different. Didn't you get the memo? He's sworn that he will be faithful to what he promised. So we read, you may recall, in that beautiful doxology at the end of the book of Micah, you will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham just as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Or think what we read earlier in our call to worship, the final lines of Mary's song. God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. If God changes the terms of his promise to Abraham, we lose the gospel. Because whatever else the gospel is, is it is certainly about God being unwaveringly faithful to his promises. This means we can also rely on God to be faithful, not just to His promises in the gospel, but to all of His promises. It means you can rely on Him to always be good to His word, to always act consistently with His character. Abraham's God is Paul's God. Paul's God is our God, unchanged and unchanging. That's an anchor for us. There are some of you who have had hard weeks. There are some of you who have gotten news that you didn't want to get. You've grieved. You've struggled in ways you would not have previously imagined. You felt betrayed. You felt overwhelmed. You felt alone. You felt like nothing is certain and everything is shifting and unstable. And if that's not been you this week, it will be. Because, friends, that's just what it's like to live in a world broken and corrupted by sin. Now, give me your eyes. The testimony of God's Word is this. Though everything in the world may seem shifting, uncertain, and unstable, the Lord does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is impossible for him to be unfaithful to his promises or to his people. It's an absolute certainty, a rock that you can rest your soul on. Returning to our text, Paul's discussion then shifts. He anticipates the question that he's likely to receive at this point based on what he's said, verse 19, why then was the law given at all? Okay, Paul, if the law doesn't supersede or change the covenant with Abraham, if it doesn't become the means of being right with God, then what's the point of the law at all? It seems like a really long part of the Bible to now not be that important. Paul's opponents couldn't imagine a purpose for the law that didn't involve earning righteousness and life and blessing. So to them, it must have seemed like Paul had just discarded the law like litter on the side of the road. 
But just because something can't be used the way we want or think doesn't mean that it's therefore useless. It means we need to learn how to use it for the purpose it was designed for. The law isn't our creation, it's God's. So we need to learn the purpose that God had in giving it. The purpose He meant for it to serve. So through then, verse 25, he shows that while the law doesn't change the divine promise of the gospel, it does have a divine purpose, one that actually serves the gospel. And before we, we start into to what he says here, just note briefly, Paul is not explaining here everything that the Bible teaches about the law and its purposes. His focus is, is much narrower Because his opponents are in error over the place of the law as it relates to the gospel, Paul is is focusing on that question of how the law actually relates to and serves the gospel. And part of what he does here is to show that the gospel, the promise, holds seniority over the law. He, he, He notes that the promises of the gospel were given first. The law is given long afterwards. That's what we just saw in the Verses we read, verses 15 to 18. It says the promises are permanent. The law was temporary. We see that in several places in the passage, right? The law is given until a certain time had come. The promises were received directly from God. The law was given indirectly through mediators. Which I think that's the point of his rather cryptic statements in verse 20. But the gospel's superiority and seniority over the law doesn't negate the purpose of God's law. While the law doesn't justify, it does, by God's design, actually serve the gospel of justification by faith. How so? Well, three things Paul mentions here in verses 19 to 25. The law reveals sin, it imprisons us under sin, and it leads us to Christ. And it does all of these things that we might be justified by faith and not works. So first, the the law reveals sin. Look at verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. You might think, ah, okay, the law was given because of transgressions. That, what does that even mean? That's not really helpful, Paul. We have to keep in mind that when Paul offers this explanation because of transgressions, there's a, there's a whole theology of the law that's hidden behind it. And like elsewhere in the letter, we need to, to fill in what Paul means by looking what he writes about the same thing elsewhere. And we get some help here, as we have many times in Galatians, from what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. A few passages, Romans 3.20, or 3.19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law... So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So for Paul to say that the law was added because of transgressions, we should understand something like the law was given for the sake of exposing transgressions. Rendering us inexcusable, silencing every mouth, holding the whole world accountable to God. The law doesn't justify, but it does make us conscious of what sin is and that we ourselves are sinners. In Romans 4.14, where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
Romans 5.13. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged, literally sin is not counted, where there is no law. It's not that prior to the law, no one is guilty of of sin, and, and if God had just chosen not to give the law, then no one would be guilty. Rather, the idea is that whether written down outside of us or stamped on our consciences inside of us, apart from the law as an objective moral standard, we wouldn't recognize it to be sin. We wouldn't recognize what we do to be a violation of God's standard. Which is why Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And in order that sin might be recognized as sin, the law used what was good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become or perhaps be shown to be utterly sinful. God's law has this revealing purpose. Its commands reveal the purity and holiness of God's character It reveals that which pleases God by showing us what God is like and what God truly desires, what God requires of us. It reveals just how sinful we are. It shows us the standard that we do not meet up to. Have you ever tried to hang pictures without a level? I have. And I can tell you, I have a much higher estimation of my ability to judge what is level than I should. I can come close maybe sometimes. When I put that that level on the frame and I see that little bubble move to the right or to the left, mocking my smug pride, I'm forced to admit that my own evaluation was off. That that little bubble shows me what is truly level. God's law is like a level. It shows us what the standard is and it reveals when it's not met. It's an objective measure that corrects our subjective evaluations. We might make everything in our house match how our pictures are not level, but it won't change the fact that when somebody walks in from the outside, everything's going to look crooked. This means that you and I, friends, we don't get to decide whether or not something is sin or whether or not we ourselves have sinned. You're pulled over by a police officer on Gallows Road and told that you were speeding. It would be a pretty poor defense just to say, no, I wasn't. Right? Right? They've got the evidence. Um, uh, No, you were going 60 in a 25. This is not a personal testimony, by the way. (laughs) It would be an even poorer defense to say, well, yeah, I was going 60. You're right about that. But that's not speeding. I've decided for me that the speed limit is 60. So I was actually going the speed limit. That's ridiculous, but it's the very thing we do with God and His law. God has given us an objective standard that defines what is and what is not right, what is and is not sin, what does and does not please Him. And held against this standard, we can't say, well, what God's Word calls sin isn't sin, nor can we say, I have not sinned. If we do so, Paul says, it's not because the law is unclear or defective, but rather By our own wickedness, we suppress the truth that is plainly revealed to us. 
Things that God's word calls sin are routinely celebrated in our world. It happens around us every day, but more importantly than pointing to the fact that it happens out there, brothers and sisters, the reality is that it happens in here. The law reveals sin as sin reveals us to be sinners. And the false teachers likely wouldn't have denied that God's law reveals God's standard or our sinfulness. But then Paul goes further than that. He says that the law not only reveals sin, it also imprisons us under sin. Look again at Galatians 3, starting in the middle of verse 21. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Where Paul's opponents taught that obedience to the law would bring life, Paul says the law does no such thing. Rather, verse 22, the the law locks everything under the control of sin. Verse 23, it holds us in custody, locked up. What does he mean here? By saying that the law imprisons us, Paul illustrates that left to ourselves, we are not just sinners, but we are in fact captive to sin. And apart from God's saving work in Christ, we are imprisoned, locked up in our sin. We hear this truth expressed so well in Charles Wesley's hymns, uh, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Paul will himself express the same idea in in subsequent passages as slavery. We are enslaved to sin. Jesus uses the same language. Anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. But we don't live this way. So we we trifle with sin, we dabble in it, or we dive headfirst into it, and all the while we think that actually we are in control. We can stop whenever we want. But the law shows us that this is an illusion. We are not in control. We are actually enslaved. And part of the horror of this imprisonment is all the while we are deceived into thinking that we are free. We think that we're free if we can do whatever we want, not realizing that doing what we want is itself a form of slavery. We're enslaved to our own desires. Try not to do what you want, and you might find that you're less free than you thought. By saying that the law imprisons us, Paul is saying that the law shows us that because we are bound by sin, we are entirely unable to free ourselves. Far from making us righteous before God, the law shows us just how unrighteous we are, how how impossible it is for for us to secure righteousness of our own. The law by itself leaves us chained in our unrighteousness leaves us under God's judgment, and thus the law highlights our need for a Savior. That leads us to the third purpose we see here. The law was ultimately given to lead us to Christ. 
at verse 22. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Again, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law reveals our sin. It imprisons us under sin, not that we might work ourselves out of sin and into righteousness, but actually in order that we might be justified by faith. This is where we see in the clearest and brightest terms how the law actually serves the gospel. The law shows us our sin and our inability to save ourselves so that we would flee to Jesus for refuge. Far from offering an alternative or a competing means of salvation, an updated operating system for the way that God will make people righteous, the law is intended to show us that we cannot do enough, that we cannot meet God's standard of righteousness, that we can't save ourselves. And the only way that we can be saved is if we consent to be saved, not by our works, but by the works of another, Jesus Christ. And until the law shows us our sin and our inability, until we become convinced that what the law says is correct, that we are sinners under God's wrath, we cannot save ourselves, until that point we will never see our need for a Savior. The gospel will not sound like good news to us because the good news it announces will make no sense outside the context of the bad news that the law reveals. Do you follow? If I were to offer to amputate your leg free of charge, I suspect that you probably would not take me up on it. But say your leg had a gangrenous infection and the only way to save your life was to amputate it then you might change your mind. Maybe not if I was the one doing it, but you might change your mind about getting it amputated. See, if we don't see that we have any need to be saved, then we won't have any reason to accept an offered Savior. So the law fulfills this essential function. It prepares people to receive and rejoice at the offer of salvation by grace. John Stott put it this way with his characteristic clarity and concision. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us up to heaven. Until we know that we can't save ourselves, until we know that there's hope in no one else, we would not flee to Christ for salvation. We would not come to him and say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The law doesn't change the divine promise of the gospel. Rather, it has this divine purpose that serves the gospel, revealing our sin, revealing the fact that we are imprisoned and unable to save ourselves. 
and revealing that we need a Savior and driving us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. As Paul says in verse 25, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That is, now that we've been justified by faith, we're no longer under the commanding, condemning, imprisoning power of the law. Now we are free. Now we're under grace. That's what God promised to Abraham. That's what God promised Paul. And it's what God has promised to all those who cast all of their hope upon Jesus Christ. It's what God promises you if you would receive and rest upon Christ as He's offered to you freely in the gospel. The law says work and live, but the work is never done and life never comes. And so by God's design, the law drives us back to the promise of the gospel, which says, believe and live, for everything has been done already, and even now, life is yours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, you have revealed yourself to be a God who is ever faithful. You do not change, and therefore we are not consumed. Therefore, we can rest upon your promises. Oh, God, help us. Help us to trust that testimony of your word as more certain than our feelings, than the ebbs and flows of our experience. You are the same yesterday, today and forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand again as we sing our final song, I will glory in my Redeemer.